the Bibles to Job chapter 22, verse 5. We've been studying the book of Job, and uh, we have seen the background of the book that the patriarch Job experiences a series of calamities. All of a sudden, his uh, wealth is taken away, all of his livestock are destroyed or stolen, uh, his children uh, are killed, all of this takes place in one day. And then just a short time thereafter, he loses his health. He's smitten with a terrible skin disease. He sits in the ashes and he scrapes himself. At this point, three of Job's friends come to seek to comfort him. And as they do so, they are just overawed with his grief-stricken situation. And they sit speechless for days with him. And finally, they begin to counsel And their earnest approach is, Job, you need to repent. You must have done something wrong or all of this wouldn't have happened to you. What did you do wrong? Why don't you confess it? We're your friends. You can confess it and we'll take it to God together. And Job says, no, I have not done anything wrong. Oh, I'm a sinner like everyone is a sinner, but I have not done some special horrible thing uh, that has brought this on me. They say, Job, you must have. And their theology of suffering is that God always blesses the godly man and always punishes the evil man in this world. Thus, if you experience serious suffering, you must have done something wrong. And Job contends that he has not. At this, And we pick up something of this interaction uh, in this section that we're looking at. In chapter 22 and verse 5, Eliphaz is charging Job with uh, some sins. He says in uh, verse 5 of chapter 22, Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and strip the naked of of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. In verse 9, Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Not that they'd seen him do any of this, but they're convinced he must have done this for something so terrible to have happened to him. Now Job answers them, and he answers those specific charges, and Chapter 31, chapter 31, verse 16, where we have first his protestation. Uh, He speaks of what his actions actually had been. Instead of doing what they claimed he had done, he'd done the opposite. In uh, verse 16, if I have withheld the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless hath not eaten thereof. For from my youth he was brought up with me as with a father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. He said, you don't understand. Since I was a child, I was raised that you share with the needy. If there was a needy person in the community, they were brought into our home. 
they ate at our table. I was taught that from my childhood, and I have followed that pattern. I have not eaten my morsel myself alone. In uh, uh, verse 19, if I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not been blessed, have not blessed me, and if his fleece were not warmed with, and if he were not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw, he says, I haven't done those things. I have done the exact opposite. I have not eaten my morsel myself alone. Now we see his action. In the face of need, if he saw the need, he had the resources to meet the need, he sacrificed, he gave, he shared, he met that need. What about us? What's our situation in America? What's the church's situation? Uh, you compare our resources and wealth with the need around the world. Uh, for instance, 12,000 people today will die of starvation, and that's not to mention the far greater number that are experiencing malnutrition, which has serious effects on their brains, on their various organs of their bodies. Larry Ward has written a book, There Shall Be Famines. He uh, traces some of these facts, and he tells about being in India some years back, and he says, I'm haunted with the words of that man in India, intelligent, educated, articulate, an advisor to the government of India. He stabbed me suddenly awake in what had been previously a casual conversation when he said, you know, don't you, that we're all going to starve to death. I looked at him for a moment at absolute loss for words. He was obviously serious, yet he had said this in very calm and matter-of-fact tones. And then Ward goes ahead to give the facts that would cause the man to say something like that. In uh, 1970, the population, that was when Ward was giving the fig figures, the population of India was 550 million. When I was there last year, the population of India was 680 million. By 1990, the population of India is going to be 1 billion. By 2000, the population of the world, which is now about 4 billion, is going to be 7 billion, almost double. And he quotes any number of articles from U.S. News and World Report and Wall Street Journal and elsewhere to the effect that the food supply is going to collide with the population growth. And some point, say around 1984, he says, there's going to be a real beginning of widespread famine because the resources are simply not adequate to meet this expansion of the population. Now, we say, but they have all kind of research underway to do something about it. That's right. There are about 42,000 research projects underway to try to do something about this but none of them shows any promise of being able to really meet the need at this point. They talk about farming the seas, but this is uh, not going to be adequate. And so uh, there's a real famine facing the world, in a sense, and a lot of it going on right now. But what about the condition of the church? That's the condition of the world. 
What about the condition of the church? A Irish, an Irish bishop wrote a poem based on uh, this phrase out of Job about eating his morsel alone. If I have eaten my morsel alone, the patriarch spoke in scorn, what would he think of the church where he shone heathendom huge, forlorn, godless, Christless, with soul unfed, while the church's ailment is fullness of bread, eating her morsel alone? I am a debtor alike to the Jew and the Greek, the mighty apostle cried, traversing continents, souls to seek for the love of the crucified. Centuries, centuries since have sped. Millions are famishing. We have bread, but we eat our morsel alone. Even of those who have largest dower shall heaven require the more. Ours is affluence, knowledge, power, ocean from shore to shore. And east and west in our ears have said, Give us, give us your living bread. Yet we eat our morsel alone. Freely as ye have received, so give, he bade who, was, who has given all. How shall the soul in us longer live, deaf to their starving call? For whom the blood of the Lord was shed, and his body broken to give them bread, if we eat our morsel alone. And we do eat our morsel alone. We spend three and a half billion dollars a year on our pets in America. And we give far, far less than that for world evangelization. But we need to bring it down from the church to you and I as individuals. What about it? Am I as an individual, or you as an individual, guilty of the type thing they charge Job with? Not sharing with the needy, having resources, but indulging ourselves. That's, that's not an easy question in a sense. You might say, how much of my resources should I give? Where's that dividing line? How do I decide uh, uh, when I'm guilty of eating my morsel myself alone? Robert Dabney was a Southern Presbyterian theologian of about a century ago, an outstanding one. He wrote a little book, Principles of Christian Economy, in which he seeks to wrestle with this. He points out that we are all stewards. A steward is someone who manages another's property. Is that watch mine? No. Why not? Well, I swiped it off. <clears throat> no. It's not mine because uh, the arm's not mine. The body's not mine. I'm a steward. I manage another person's property. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm a slave. I'm owned by God, by Jesus Christ. And with that premise, he says, Now, it's the plainest truth in the world that the steward is to manage the estate committed to him, not for his private advantage or profit, but for that of the owner. The owner, as a just and benevolent man, will, of course, allow his steward a competent subsistence out of the estate. But the profits of the property are his, not his servants. And the general aim with which the whole is managed is to promote the owner's advantage. It is a settled rule of law that a slave can own no property. 
Whatever he has and whatever he may acquire belong to the master to whom he belongs, except so far as the master may lend him the use of it. So we, God's slaves, can own nothing. We are to serve God with all our strength. Our property is a part of our strength, and therefore we are to serve him with all of our property. First, as we think about how much of our property should we use on ourselves, he says, first, it is proper that we should employ so much of God's property as is necessary in our own sustenance. The servant must be duly fed and clothed in order that he may be able to work for his master. This expenditure is most strictly an expenditure in God's service, since it results in work done for him. Also, whatever is truly needed to give the highest efficiency to both body and mind for God's service and whatever truly promotes the noblest development of our moral qualities is in his interest. This will include, for instance, that comfort and cleanliness in food and dress and those recreations and enjoyments which are necessary to give the greatest firmness to the muscles and the most healthy energy to the animal spirits, to our human spirits. Food for the mind, such as judicious education, good books, useful accomplishments, proper medicines and remedies in sickness, and a wholesome and natural cultivation of those tastes which tend to refine and elevate the moral nature. We believe that neither God's providence nor God's law has designed that man shall serve him as a dull, overworked hack, but that the rendering of the highest and greatest service is perfectly consistent with man's highest enjoyment of the natural and rational blessings of life. The simple and temperate use of all those enjoyments strengthens man for his work by promoting the contentment and cheerfulness of his feelings. In one word, it is right to expend on ourselves all that will qualify us to serve God with the greatest efficiency. This is strictly expending God's property in his own service. Second, it is right to employ a part of our master's property in sustaining and rearing the families which he has committed to us, in sustaining his servants and in rearing new servants we are strictly applying his property to his advantage. Third, a part of the possessions entrusted to us may rightfully be employed in making a reasonable provision for ourselves and those dependent on us against the contingencies of the future, insurance, this type of thing. But, he says, after that, Property remaining after these three lawful deductions is required, obviously, by our principles to be used for the good of others, to be used in advancing his kingdom in the lives of others. When a Christian man who has professed to dedicate himself and his all, body and soul, and estate to the highest glory of God and love of his fellow creatures, when he passes by the hundreds of starving poor and degraded sinners around him, the thousands of ignorant at home, and the millions of heathen in foreign lands, 
whom his money might instrumentally rescue from hell fire, and sells for a song his safe, strong, comfortable family carriage. We'd have to translate that into today's terms. I won't put a particular label on that family carriage, but anyway. Uh, sells that family carriage and expends hundreds, thousands, let's say, in procuring another because his rich neighbor is about to outstrip him in this article of equipage, or when he sacrifices his plate and china to buy new at a great cost because the style of the old was a little past, or when he pulls down his commodious dwelling to expend thousands in building another because the first was unfashionable, is not this sinful waste. When hundreds and thousands of God's money are abstracted from the wants of a perishing world for which the Son of God died to purchase the barbaric finery of jewelry, as offensive to good taste as to Christian economy, jewelry which keeps out no cold blast in winter and no scorching heat in summer, which fastens no needful garment or promotes no bodily comfort, is not this extravagance. And we need to take this and translate it into our own situations and terms, but you get the principle that he's making, that it's valid to expend it to maintain ourselves in good health so that we can serve the Lord. Uh, to elevate our minds and so on, to spend it for our children uh, along the same lines, to raise servants for him, and to make provision against contingency. But above and beyond that, then his resources need to be used to advance his cause in the world in every way possible. I think he gives some good guidelines there. In the light of those guidelines, could we say... I have not eaten my morsel myself alone. Or would we have to say, I'm afraid I haven't really honestly lived up to those principles? We see Job's protestation. Notice his imprecation in verse 22. He says, Then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade, and mine arm be broken from the bone. Job says, If I've been guilty of doing that, if I have seen need, had the means to meet that need, and haven't done it, then God, I want you to just cause my arm to fall off from my body right this minute. <laughs> That's quite a prayer. That's quite a statement. Could you say that? Could you say, God, if I've lived selfishly, if I've indulged myself at the expense of the world, I just want you to cause my arm to drop off Anybody here want to volunteer to stand up and say it? That's a solemn statement. Job said it. Now, to be able to say that, you've got to really have been living that way. Job really had been living that way, and he could say it. I'm afraid I would shy away from saying it. But you know the awesome and awful thing about it? What Job is saying really is this. He's saying... You fellows are coming to me and you're saying, I must have done something awful for all these things to have happened, like withholding from the poor their needs and spending it on myself. You're saying, I must have done that. Well, if I had done what you're saying, I would expect these calamities to come. I would expect my arm to drop off. I would expect some terrible disease. But I haven't done it. So in a sense, we are 
whether orally or not, we are, by our lifestyle, calling down this kind of implication on ourselves or on our nation if we do this. And we need to deal with it. We need to repent if we feel we've been guilty of this. Notice his motivation in verse 23. For destruction from God was a terror to me, and by reason of his highness I could not endure. Job said, you fellows want to know what kept me from doing that? You know why I haven't turned away the poor? Why I haven't indulged myself? He said, here's the reason. I was afraid of what God would do to me if I did it. Destruction from God was a terror. Is that an adequate motive? It's a strong motive, isn't it? I think it's an adequate motive. It's not the highest motive. The highest motive would be, Job said, I haven't done it because I love my fellow man too much to do that. That'd be a higher motive, wouldn't it? But Job was being real honest. And Job was just telling it like it is. And Job was saying, I do love my fellow man, but I don't always love him. And that motive hasn't always controlled my heart. And when that motive wasn't adequate, I'll tell you another motive that came into play and that kept me from doing what you fellows say I've done. And that was fear of the Lord. That motive is a biblical motive. The beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you find that motive throughout the Old Testament appealed to and urged home to us. For instance, in Proverbs 21.13, if it says, He who shuts his ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in his own time of need. Then when I cry to God, God will shut his ears to me. In the New Testament, Paul says, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for the things done in the body. And he said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Since I know that I've got to do that, I'm about his business. I've got to answer one day. One of the missionary hymns that we sing has to do with the fact that we all have to give answer. It says, but there are many millions who have never heard his name. They've no hope of life eternal they cannot salvation claim, for they do not know the message Jesus told us to proclaim till every tribe shall hear. The day of God is coming when the church of Christ shall stand face to face with Christ her Savior in the blessed glory land, and we each shall give our answer. Did you hasten my command? Till every tribe shall hear, we each shall give our answer. Did you hasten my command? We see Job's protestation, his imprecation, the curse he calls down on himself if he's been guilty of that, his motivation. Let's make personal application. What about us? Hudson Taylor, on one occasion, the founder of the China Inland Mission, was in England. He'd been in China as a missionary and he was back in England, and there was a large Christian meeting being held, a convention, and he wanted to speak. 
He wanted to tell about the needs in China. He wanted to challenge them to give. And they didn't want him to speak. The program uh, committee there, they said, no, this is a spiritual meeting. This isn't a missionary meeting. This is a spiritual meeting. And uh, he finally persuaded them to give him about five minutes. And what did he do with his five minutes? He told about something that happened in China when he was there in his last time. He was on a ship, a boat, going from uh, Shanghai to Ningpu. Among his fellow passengers was a Chinese man who had been to England and had been exposed some to the gospel by the name of Peter. He, called, he was nicknamed Peter. And Hudson Taylor had witnessed to him. He had told him of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how Christ had died for his sins and rose from the dead. And if he would turn and repent, surrender his will to Christ, put his trust in Jesus Christ to forgive him as a sheer gift based on Christ's death for his sins, that he would be forgiven. He would become a Christian. Christ would dwell within him. Ultimately, he would go to heaven. He had urged these things home. And the man was open, but he was not yet ready. And he had not committed his life to Christ. And they were getting ready to go ashore. And uh, Hudson Taylor went in his cabin to pack. And he heard a splash and someone haul a man overboard. He ran outside and his friend Peter had fallen overboard. And was nowhere in sight. And... Uh, he looked around and he saw a fishing boat with some men nearby. They had a dragnet, just the thing that was needed. And uh, he called, he said, Come quick, a man drowned, is drowning, a man fell in. Come drag this spot, you can get him. They hollered back and they said, Vibin, not convenient. It's not convenient. He's drowning, come quick, I'll pay you. They said, How much will you pay? He said, Five dollars. They said, we won't come for less than 30. He said, I'll give you all the money I've got. They said, how much do you have? He said, $14. They said, all right, we'll come. So they came, they drug the spot. First time through, they caught the man. Picked him up in the net, brought him aboard, but it was too late. He drowned. They'd just come sooner. Could have been safe. As Hudson Taylor told this story to this Christian convention, indignation swept through that crowd. How could any group of people be so callous as that group when they could have saved that man's life and they were concerned about money? Hudson Taylor then drove it home. He said, Is the body then of so much more value than the soul? We condemn those heathen fishermen. We say they were guilty of the man's death because they could have easily saved him and did not do it. But what are the millions whom we leave to perish, and that eternally. What are the plain command? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, what are the statement in Proverbs that says, If thou forbear to deliver them uh, that are drawn to death, and them that are ready to be slain. If you say, Behold, we knew it not. Doth not he that ponder the heart consider it? And uh, he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know and will he not render to every man according to his works? I was preaching this last week at a missionary conference up in North Carolina. On Sunday morning, I mentioned the need to give to missions and that we should ask the Lord to search us and show us wealth unused, wealth we have that 
we could throw into the battle, and maybe we're it's just unused in some way. It's tied up in something, maybe stocks or maybe real estate or whatever, but it could be thrown into the battle. And then wealth ill-used. Show us this. The last night of the conference, uh, Layman said, I'd like to speak a word. I said, come on up. He said, you know, when you mentioned wealth unused and wealth ill-used, I glanced out the window. And I happened to see my very expensive car sitting out there. And then I, I just happened to look out the other window, and I saw my wife's car that she'd driven over, a very expensive car sitting out there. The Lord spoke to my heart. There's $30,000 worth of automobiles. You don't need that. There's wealth ill-used and wealth unused. And said, I, God convicted me that I need to get rid of that that I need to get something less expensive and that I can do this. He said, it really thrilled my heart that I'm going to be able to do this and to, to give this. Well, that's it. That's the type of response that we need to have. We need to be prepared to make adjustments in our lifestyle as we search our hearts, as we ask God to search our hearts. It becomes a real joy. This guy was excited. He was thrilled about what God was doing in his life. It's a real opportunity to step out in faith. It's an opportunity to take inventory. I think that our pledge Sunday, which is coming up next Sunday, is a great opportunity always, a real blessing when we approach it in the right way. No one should feel under any pressure from anybody except God. But we need to prayerfully approach it and say, God, here's a time for inventory. Here's a time when I can take checks. Here's a time when our whole church can be blessed. Oh, God, give me an open heart. Give me an attuned ear. Show me. Lord, I want to step out in faith in a new way. I want to learn to trust you in this concrete area. Approach it like that. It will be a blessing. Of course, you could be here today and you're like that fellow Peter. You've heard the gospel, but you haven't really committed your life to Christ. That's the starting place for you. Why not commit your life to Christ right now? You've never done that. Let's bow in prayer. As our hearts are bowed, if you have never personally committed your life to Jesus Christ, why not do that right now? You never know when you're going to fall overboard. None of us are, gathered, are guaranteed a, a set length of time yet to live. It's not something to trifle with. Why not commit your life right this minute to Jesus Christ? Pray in your heart like this if you've never genuinely done it. Lord Jesus, I don't want to delay any longer. I realize the foolishness of it. I do believe in you, and I commit myself to you. I surrender my will to you as my Lord. I trust you as my Savior. Come into my life. For the rest of us, let's really ask the Lord to search our hearts and show us if we've eaten our morsel alone or where we are. Father, I'd pray for myself and I pray for all of us that you would show us where we are eating our morsel, ourself alone. We don't want to do that. We know we'll have to answer and we want to be able to, like Job, have a clear conscience in this matter. We ask that you'd make this week ahead and this time of commitment, a great personal and 
corporate blessing. Father, you can do that, and we know you want to, and we want you to. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.